Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talked to Sarah Jaffe, journalist and author of Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted and Alone. We discussed Joe Biden's first weeks as president, the impact of COVID-19 and climate breakdown in the US, and how the world of work is changing as a result of the pandemic and how we might resist it. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link to our Patreon in the description. If you want to support the show another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Sarah Jaffe on how Texas became the new frontier of the climate emergency. Hello, Sarah, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing? I'm all right. It's snowing again here and I'm rather tired of the snow, but you know, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Everything's good. So speaking of snow, can you fill us in a little bit as to what's been going on in Texas? Because all I know is that it's snowing or something and people are getting like ten to $20,000 fuel bills. What's going on? So this is what happens when you utterly deregulate your energy industry, right? And so um, Texas in particular, although a lot of the American South is having a climate change related um, deep freeze at the moment, which is not normal for that part of the country. It's pretty far south. It's usually Mm. pretty warm. Um, And that means that people's sort of homes aren't built for it to be that cold. Mm. So you have things like really bad or next to no insulation because you're in like Houston, Texas, where it just doesn't get cold. And so that's sort of one thing is just that like the infrastructure is not prepared for it because this is an extreme weather event based, you know, because of climate change. Um, Mm. The second thing is that the electric industry has been totally deregulated. And so they've come up with these weird scams. Like there are energy companies, like one which is called Gritty, which you know what I'm going to say. I know Gritty, yeah. are Gritty, right? (laughs) So I'm picturing now like the Philadelphia Flyers weird looking mascot for those of your listeners who don't know what we're talking about here, um, (laughs) like controlling your electricity. But these companies, what they do is you pay like a really low monthly fee and then your prices rise and fall based on demand. So you know what happens when suddenly there's a massive deep freeze. And if you're one of the lucky people whose power just didn't go out for several days because, you know, the grid itself is is not built for this and hasn't been repaired in years, because why would any of these companies put money into, you know, keeping their infrastructure going? Mm-hmm. Now people are getting like $16,000 electric bills. And even from like the municipally owned energy company, which was saying like, oh, we'll space this out over 10 years, people can pay it back, which is like insane. Yeah. So, you know, people in places like Austin, I was emailing with um, friend and comrade Raj Patel this morning, who is in Austin, who was like, yeah, we our power is back now. Um, we had to leave the house because it got too cold for the children and the elders. So we had to go somewhere else to find somewhere warm to be. They were out, out of power for something like a, several days. And yeah. And, and um, Ted Cruz went to somewhere hot in response or something, right? I mean, the government put up sort of warming centers, uh, mutual aid groups were doing warming centers. 
things like that so that there were like hopefully places where people could go that still had power and therefore mm. you wouldn't freeze or, you know, die of carbon monoxide poisoning trying to warm up in your car. Ugh. So, yeah. And and right. And then to top that all off, all the Republicans who've run Texas for time immemorial are blaming the Green New Deal for all of huh. this, which, of course, if any place in the U.S. had actually had a Green New Deal, we haven't. But Texas would have been one of the last because the people who run Texas are like the guy who's the lieutenant governor of Texas, who last year when the pandemic began, said that grandparents would be happy to die in order to keep the economy running. So like, so it's just like, it's, it's bonkers on so many levels. And luckily we have, you know, some politicians who don't suck like Cori Bush, who are now just calling for fully nationalizing all utilities, making yeah. them all public and free, which is great. Um, I'm stunned that like a member of Congress is saying that out loud for the first time in my life. Yeah, no, that is amazing. Great. I'm just wondering here, how on earth have they managed to blame this on the Green New Deal? It's the same thing as when, you know, people will post pictures of, of like empty shelves in a supermarket and be like, oh, it looks like Venezuela in here. And it's like, no, no, this is America under capitalism. That's, yeah. that's what it does. Um, you know, people complaining about bread lines. And I'm like, yeah. So, but this is what it looks like here now. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's preemptive, right? Because they know that this is actually a great reason to talk about things like yeah greening the grid and making sure that people's homes are weatherproofed and all of the things that that people have talked about as part of a Green New Deal. So, you know, in order to head it off, they're sort of like, well, this will never work. And this is somehow the fault of, of you know, green industries. And that people are saying, like, you know, wind turbines froze. Texas does not have that many wind turbines, even mm. though it's actually a great place for wind because it's got a lot of big open flat spaces. But it doesn't have most of this because it's also a massive oil production state. Yeah. And so it mostly runs on very, very dirty energy. And it is that infrastructure that massively just collapsed. Mm. Um, okay, so... America, it's rude. It's great. <laughs> we did say before we were discussing this podcast, I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask Sarah about... You know, I'm going to ask you about, you know, some news. <laughs> and you were just like, oh, <laughs> America, it's rude. So it's going to be a short one. <laughs> Oh, but there are so many other ways we're also screwed. It's great. Well, and we're about to talk about all of them. So the Democrats tried to impeach Trump and they failed. (laughs) Why did they do it? (laughs) For the second time. For the second time. Um, Slightly more votes, I think, to impeach this time. But you have to get two thirds of the Senate, sort of like you have to get two thirds of the Senate to do anything because they've allowed the filibuster to just become regular policy. So, yeah. So even though some Republicans did actually vote to impeach him this time, Mm. He still did not actually get impeached, which means theoretically he could run for president again. Well, I kind of don't think he will, but you know, I mean, maybe, who knows? So, I mean, all his like, so he, he, there was also this stuff this week about challenges to the election results mm-hmm. that were taken up in the in yeah. the courts that were rejected and thrown out. Yeah, Trump's base presumably is still clinging to the idea that he was basically cheated. Is, mm-hmm. And presumably this isn't going to make that sentiment go away. They're not going away, are they? So, you know, what's going to happen to Trump's base around the next election? Do you think there will be pressure for him to run again? Or are we going to see someone even crazier, if that's possible? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, there's there's a whole lot of Trump true believers out there, mm-hmm. right? And Trump is certainly an egomaniac in that way that, you know, I'm sure he loves it. But like, it was never clear that he liked being president all that much. Yeah, What he liked was having big, 
racist rallies where people cheer his name. You know, right. he didn't actually appear to like the job of running things very much and didn't really accomplish very much, you know. Um, and anytime it got hard, he just went on vacation. So, yeah, I, I would my guess would be he won't run again. My guess would be that what we're going to see is Republicans vying for the mantle of sort of being able to claim the Trump base. Mm. Because what's happened, you know, is that, and people have been pointing this out for years, right? Alex Perrine wrote a piece right after the Charlottesville attacks that said basically that like, this is the base of the Republican party now. Yeah. And it's been proved true, right? A lot of the people who were in the the attacks on the Capitol on January 6th were like local Republican elected officials mm. and, and cops. We should, they're mm. definitely also cops, but like, you know, so you, you get sort of this base that is whipped up into this, you know, this frenzy. Um, we're going to see the Marjorie Taylor Greens, who is of course the, the QAnon Congresswoman, doubling down, tripling down on whatever they can do in this way. And this is this has been happening to the Republican Party for a long time. And it also echoes like really old traditions in American politics in, you know, in terms of well, racism, but also like mm. conspiracy theory sort of yeah. using the bully pulpit to whip up populist frenzies about all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, using that to basically turn energies that could be turned to calling for things like a Green New Deal instead to basically sort of, you know, racist panic and conspiracy theories. And yeah, I mean, it's going nowhere good. And I mm -hmm. think one of the things that's going to be the hardest is for a lot of people, there is a deep investment in seeing Trump as a, a kind of anomaly. And if we can just keep Trump himself out of power, then like the problems are, are gone. And my rejoinder to that would be just like, no, there are a yeah. lot of Trumps out there who would love to take up his mantle and and might be better at it the next time around, you know? Yeah, so I mean, it really worries me. If anything, we're moving into a kind of what feels like this like groundhog day of repeating what's likely to be, you know, a Democratic president elected with a lot of fanfare and excitement who then immediately starts breaking promises, probably exactly. fails to like deliver on a lot of the promises that he made over the course of of his term if he even tries and then that feeds into this sense of kind of you know this generalized and understandable mass distrust of the american state of political elites right. of you know that kind of sentiment that that fueled the rise of trump to begin with so right how how do we get out of this never-ending loop <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the challenge, right? Because like, yeah, Joe Biden is already sort of backing down from any sort of big promises that he might have made and is notably sort of not taking the moment of this massive infrastructure crisis to say we want to do something about it, right? On the campaign trail, he wasn't for the Green New Deal, but he was definitely talking about like green jobs and investment and, and the climate crisis being real, which is absolutely like the bottom bar we should be asking for. But, you know, he's already sort of saying, oh, we probably can't do a $15 an hour minimum wage, which, by the way, wasn't going to come into effect until 2025. We probably can't do student loan forgiveness. Mm. And, you know, and this is already somebody who had like not promised that much, right? Yeah. Like the big the big theme of the Biden primary campaign was like, no, we can't have nice things. Yeah. And then the general election was like, maybe we can have a few nice things. <laughs> and now it's sort of back to like Joe Manchin says we can't have nice things because Joe Manchin, who is the Democratic senator from West Virginia, 
democratic in like the biggest possible air quotes. Um, and <laughs> that's even with like the extremely low bar that is the Democratic yeah. Party in the Senate. Joe Manchin is really enjoying this like very slim Democratic majority yeah. and using it to make himself the most powerful man in the room. And I can only hope that some of the folks who've been doing some really impressive organizing in West Virginia have a plan to ruin his life regularly until he <laughs> announces that he will no longer oppose things that would make people in his state, which yeah. is very rural and very poor, better off. I always remember reading um, Ralph Miliband uh, talking about the Labour Party. And I think he was talking about the 20s or 30s with McDonald's mm. basically saying like the Labour Party establishment basically really liked the fact that they they weren't a majority in government because it meant mm-hmm. that they could pass off their like just inbuilt reticence to do anything radical as like an inability yeah. to do so. And it feels yeah. like that's going to be a big theme of of this presidency as well i mean the whole thing about like oh we need to bring republicans in to pass x and y and z Mm -hmm. relief measure and it's like actually no you don't but you're going to do that anyway so it looks like they're pressuring you to take stuff out of it when actually you just want to take stuff out of it yeah so the sort of wanky answer to this that actually might make a difference this time around um is that the thing that is probably going to be required for the democrats to pass anything through the Senate is budget reconciliation, which means that anything that has sort of impact on the budget can be shoved into these big, massive budget reconciliation bills that only have to pass with a simple majority. So they only they can pass this with just the Democratic votes that they have. Mm. That's probably what's going to happen because the Republicans aren't going to get on board for anything. I'm sorry, they're not. Yeah. Um, And your listeners probably know who the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee is now. It is comrade Bernie Sanders. Oh, oh. Yeah. that was that, that is the thing that is giving us hope at the moment, actually, for anything that might get through Congress. Yeah. It's not that like Joe Biden's going to push for anything. It's that Bernie's going to push for things. Well, that's so, cool. Yeah, I actually have been talking about this for a while, which is that like, you know, we, we focus so much on Bernie's running for president twice and the space that that opened up for us to talk about different political things, but he's actually been remarkably good at being a legislator for his entire career. And he's actually got a pretty good track record of getting things passed. So um, I'm really hoping that, that Bernie is going to pull out his inner Lyndon Johnson and get really good at twisting arms, ramming things into budget reconciliation and getting them passed because that's actually the best hope we have. And then Next time, <laughs> we'll get him in. <laughs> and then next time we make Cory Bush president. I mean, this is yeah. really what I'm getting for. Right? Cory Bush is slightly older than AOC, so she's eligible to run sooner. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it would be very cool to have a radical black woman standing as well. So yeah, that, make, that makes more sense. She seems cool. We'll, go, we'll try and get her on the show at some point. <laughs> oh, she's just the best. Yeah. Um, so speaking of Biden's broken promises, the <laughs> famous, $1,400 checks. Um, mm-hmm. I was just astonished at how quickly this was announced after, you know, like basically winning Georgia partly at mm-hmm. least on the back of, of that $1,000 check promise and then immediately turning around and saying, no, actually it's 1400 and that's what I meant all along. How did you not know? Are you guys all stupid? It just shows such contempt for the electorate. I just... It honestly baffles the mind. And they haven't passed those yet. 
So like, I mean, I haven't even gotten the second $600 check. Like a lot of people still haven't even gotten those right. um, because they're all trying to means test everything based on 2019 tax returns when 2020 is the year when the crisis happened, you know, so nothing. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's been ridiculous, right? Because like Georgia, the win in Georgia is based in, I mean, A, it's based in, you know, how badly the Republicans handled everything afterwards, but it's also based in, in the fact that they made very simple, easy to understand promises. We want to give you a $2,000 check. Those are the ads that they ran, you know? Another thing I saw the other day that I wanted to ask you about is Biden announcing some changes to ICE and ICE's mandate. Obviously, migrants, the undocumented are, you know, in a very, very difficult and precarious position right now, especially if you can't work and you can't claim social security. But also, you know, we know that for whatever reason, black people are more likely to suffer with the virus quite badly, as are, you know, a number of other different what we would call kind of BAME minority ethnic groups in the UK. And there's obviously some overlap there as well in the US. Can you talk to us a little bit about what these changes to ICE are and why, like, so the ACLU has called it like a step backward on immigration? It is not enough is what it is. So there there was the story that we're being told is that Biden wanted to halt deportations and couldn't because ICE wouldn't do it. And because there was a court decision that said that, you know, that upheld uh, whatever ICE was arguing, which like that in itself is kind of horrifying. Like the the executive branch of the government apparently has no control over the agencies that it runs. What? Like, you've got to be kidding me, right? That that on its own should be an argument for dismantling the thing. So yeah, I haven't read super closely up on the details of this, but I know that they've deported 26,000 people since Biden has taken office, which has been 34 days. Wow. So yeah, we're still deporting people. We're still locking them up. We're still (laughs) doing the things that we have been doing, which again, like under Trump, we're not as much of a change as people like to think. Biden hasn't ended racism. No, Biden has not snapped his fingers and ended racism or even deportations. Yeah. And yeah, and the thing the thing that worries me about this, right, is that these things were sort of invisible under Obama, right? Like immigrant organizers called him the deporter in chief. And mm. your average white liberal resistance tweeter didn't care that much. And yeah. they cared a lot when Trump was doing it because Trump was so icky about it. Um, because Trump was very obviously blatantly racist about it. It's like okay. lock kids in cages, but do it nicely. And don't be mean on Twitter. Yeah. So <laughs> The thing that worries me the most is that the people who were like really incensed over Trump era policies are going to be like, well, Biden said he was doing better. And it's like, yeah, but like there are numbers on this, right? These are these are like Mm. quantitative questions. Um, Sure, there are qualitative questions, too. But like the real thing is like you are still separating families because you are still deporting people. Mm. And now... We are going to move on to a slightly happier subject. We're going to talk a little bit about your new excellent book, Work Won't Love You Back, which everyone should read. I'll put a link in the description. Um, It has a ringing endorsement from yours truly. Um, So, Sarah, talk to us a little bit about 
the process of putting the book together what made you decide to write it now because obviously it's like impeccably well timed with the world of work (laughs) changing before our very eyes yeah um I didn't expect my timing to be this good actually I finished it last (laughs) February and then um you know flew back from London to the US and straight into lockdown and had to do a whole bunch more interviews to sort of add the pandemic in but luckily like the general direction that everything was going on was, I mean, not luckily, unluckily, because everything is terrible, but <laughs> luckily for my book being correct, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't have to sort of change the argument. More of it was just like, and then we see this happening because everything yeah. is terrible right now. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and the book really draws on like 10 years of being a labor journalist and seeing the way that work was changing the way that the experiences of the working class were changing and the narratives that we are sort of hearing the sort of common sense around work has Mm -hmm. changed. And so this idea, you know, that, that I sort of grew up with that most people younger than me definitely grew up with, which is just like, go, you know, do what you love, work really hard and you'll be able to succeed at whatever you do. So, you know, do, do a thing that you love and you'll never work a day in your life and blah, 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 whatever. Mm. And that your job will be this amazing source of fulfillment and meaning in your life. Um, But that's not actually the way we've always talked about work. That it's the way we've talked about some work for a very long time. It's the way Mm. we've talked about most work for a relatively recent period of time. And I tie that into things like deindustrialization and the the Mm. shape of the labor market in countries like the US and the UK where now more of the jobs that people do are the jobs that require your mind and your heart to sort of show up in mm. place with you. I think what's so interesting about this argument as well is that it's quite clearly, these trends have quite clearly impacted so many people just, just like in various different positions in society. So, I mean, obviously that kind of do what you love narrative isn't going to cut it for people who end up having to do kind of minimum wage zero hour Mm -hmm. jobs that they're just doing it to survive on the one hand but on the other hand we have this phenomenon of so many people especially in the UK where we had like 50% of people attending university so many people going to university getting degrees often paying a lot of money to get those Mm -hmm. degrees coming out realizing that they are overqualified for the jobs that exist and using that education to like end up in a job that doesn't reward them and that they find less rewarding precisely because they've gone out and gotten that education. Yeah. It just seems like, you know, the, the the kind of broken promises of this narrative are so just extensive that yeah. it's a shock that it still exists. Yeah, it's and it, it sort of exists harder and it gets sort of, you know, propagandized harder and harder mm-hmm. the worse shit gets, right? Like I just, I love the like, we work, which, you know, just exists yeah. to monetize the fact that companies don't want to spend money on offices anymore, was selling tote bags that said, do what you love. So my oh. publisher and I actually designed work won't love you back tote bags in the same font because amazing. Like, you got to do that. And yeah, like it, it's sort of the worse work gets, the more we're told that we should love it. And it's, mm. it's that sort of same, like, I didn't actually use this term in the book, but I maybe should have that same sort of cruel optimism um, that Lauren Berlant writes about, right? That like, you know, the worse things get, the more you just have to like hope it gets better, work really hard and whatever doesn't work out for you must somehow be your fault. Mm. And that I think is such a core part of the way neoliberalism functions is to tell us that that everything is our choice and therefore everything is our fault. 
that I really, um, yeah, in, in trying to figure out sort of how to describe this narrative as, as something that was sort of historically contingent and changing, I really thought about like, you know, I mean, I thought about Margaret Thatcher a lot, frankly, because Margaret Thatcher just always says the thing right out loud. Yeah, she literally you know? does. She says the quiet part out loud. Yeah, like Reagan was just like, blah, 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 blah you know, America, yeah. morning in America. And Margaret Thatcher was like, economics is the method. The object is to change the soul. <laughs> and you're just like, yep, that's right. That's, that's, yeah. you, you just said it out loud. You sure did. That whole idea, right, that like, we're going to privatize everything. And so therefore, everything is yours and you have the opportunity to do everything. So if you can't do it, it is clearly your fault. You have screwed up somehow. You have failed to love your job hard enough. And the fact that it is a job sort of never enters into this conversation at all. Yeah. And of course, that's another reason why, you know, it would be ridiculous for you to think about unionizing or kind of trying mm-hmm. to hold your employer to account, both yeah. because of the ideology and obviously because they actually destroyed the labor movement in both these countries. Right. And the active crushing of unions. And, and you know, I was thinking about this in a couple of conversations lately about the way that like the crushing of the labor movement crushed all of these vehicles of sort of off the clock interaction and the things that like, you know, when I've done stories about factory closures and you talk to the workers about like what they're going to miss, it's each other, you know, it's the union, it's their membership. It's going for a drink at the bar across the street after work with all their buddies. Like that's the thing. And the crushing of unions was deliberately done in order to sort of destroy that and, and make us all, again, the little Thatcher term of, uh, you know, individual men and women and families. And so, you know, any sort of bigger social unit has been deliberately destroyed. And, yeah. like, you know, the pandemic has only worsened that because we're literally now all living in our little individual men and women and family units. And we're literally not allowed to see anyone else. Yeah. And, and like... That's horrible. It's a terrible way to live. It's miserable and awful, right? And yet, you know, we're sort of have had it beaten into us for the last however many years, like, you know, my entire lifetime, that we have to just compete with each other in order to succeed. That the whole plan is we have to, you know, scramble against the other the other writers say, you know, Grace, you and I should hate each other and be competing all the time, right? Yeah. Because like, that's the thing that you have to do. And it's like, but that actually is terrible. It's a terrible way to live. And it also doesn't get us anywhere. Like it actually also doesn't make you succeed in the very way that like capitalism has told us it will make us successful. And so, you know, the whole thing is falling apart, which is why it's fascinating to me to watch union campaigns among kind of white collar workers and the laborers Mm -hmm. of love. So I write in the book about video game workers, but also about like arts museum workers. There's been a real wave of art museum workers unionizing in the U.S. Journalists, sort of the new new online Mm -hmm. brand of journalism. Um, There's been a lot of union drives among journalists, all of these fields that are sort of the laborers of love. And then also that like the most militant parts of the sort of older working class are also the laborers of love. So it's teachers, yeah. right? It's the teacher strike waves in the U.S. It's the teacher, you know, it's it's thousands of new people joining the NEU over being forced back into schools. It's all of this 
militancy saying like, okay, yeah, you told us to love our jobs. You've told us to love our students over and over and over again. And yet you keep forcing us to work in these horrific working conditions. So maybe all this lie about, you know, caring about the kids is crap. And maybe actually, you know, you don't care about the kids at all. Yeah. David Graeber used to say this when he talked about the whole kind of ideology that was used to enforce the existence of bullshit jobs because he said that like if you did something that you cared about for a living that's seen as remuneration enough yes so if you're a teacher you get to like your job and care about the people that you work with so you don't deserve to be paid because you have the satisfaction of doing something that's nice and fuzzy especially if you're a woman because it's natural to be doing all those things exactly it's natural for you to care about the children and therefore you should only care about the children and how dare you care about anybody else or like the nhs workers right so it's natural you you went into this because you care about people so clearly you don't mind working however many hours you are working under covid and doing that without proper protective equipment and you know it's great we'll we'll all clap for you we clap for you isn't that wonderful can you eat clapping I didn't. (laughs) Um, I don't think you can eat clapping. I don't think clapping keeps you from getting COVID. (laughs) It would be really nice if clapping kept us from getting COVID. That would be cool. If anything, it would make it worse from like spreading (laughs) the air out. (laughs) It's true. It's true. We were just talking a bit about like, you know, the pandemic changing the world of work, which has become the kind of aphorism that that people talking about this issue right now are, are thinking about. It does seem as though you know, a lot of people are not going to go back to the office full time, Mm -hmm. can work from home. Many of them will be kept at home. Like a lot of commercial properties probably going to end up being turned into flats of various kinds. Mm -hmm. That's obviously going to have an impact on what you were just discussing, which is unionizing among white collar workers. How on earth are organizers, the labor movement unions supposed to get around what seems like a massive new challenge? Yeah, I mean, that's it's it's also accelerating a trend that's been underway forever, right? Like I, or not forever, but for the last couple of decades, like I have been a full-time journalist since 2009. Um, I In that time, I have had precisely one job that actually had an office. Yeah. Even, so I'm freelance now, but even when I had jobs as a staff writer at a couple of places, I happened to work for places that weren't headquartered in New York when I was living in New York. So I still worked from home. So like, Mm. this has kind of been my lifestyle for a while. I mentioned WeWork, which of course, like, exists to, you know, take up the space that people no longer have offices. So, you know, that was already a trend of sort of outsourcing, essentially, the sort of means of office work onto the employee. So now instead of, you know, going to the office and having a computer that my boss bought me and having them pay for the Wi-Fi and the, you know, maybe the access to databases and all these other things that I need for work, I'm paying for all of that on my own. And it's coming out of, you know, my energy bills that I'm sitting here trying to heat this cold ass Mm. bedroom all day. And that's been already a trend. And then like what we've seen since COVID is that like people who are working from home are working longer hours than ever before. Um, Notably, I don't know if that was counting people's commuting time as part of working time, which I would argue you should. But again, it's it's atomizing, it's privatizing, Mm. it is blurring the lines between work and home, which is a big thing that I write about in the book. Mm. And it's just another way that work takes over your whole damn life, right? Yeah. 
Do you think we're going to see a kind of upsurge of resistance to this when like we're allowed to kind of meet up and socialize again? Because I perhaps overly optimistically feel as though there is this kind of undercurrent of discontent that is in one way or another kind of waiting to manifest itself in lots of different ways. I think like obviously the Black Lives Matter protests were an example of something that was sparked by particular events and therefore, you know, took place at the time it did. But I think the scale that it eventually like mm-hmm. came to and the speed with which it spread is indicative of of quite a substantial yeah. level of kind of you know undercurrent of resistance almost and I kind of feel like mm-hmm. that's gonna end up coming out in one way or another whether it's through strikes whether it's through protests through direct action whatever when the pandemic yeah. is over what do you think? Yeah, we were just looking at data that just came out of of sort of last year's strike data in mm-hmm. the U.S., which showed that strikes were way down, and notably the the Bureau of, of Labor Statistics only collects strike data for strikes of over a thousand people at a time, right. which leaves out things like a strike that I covered at the Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York of nurses, because there were less than a thousand nurses that yeah. work there. So there were less than a thousand nurses on strike. And I was talking with a friend about trying to you know, see if we could get that data, particularly from nurses unions, because there has been a wave of nurses union strikes in the US in the last few months. And I wrote a piece about this for The Nation magazine um, that came out a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that the nurses at the Albany, at the Albany Medical Center told me was that they had been in bargaining for a contract and they had been on the verge of a strike last March. And then the pandemic started and they were like, okay, we'll put it on hold because obviously this is yeah. like a once in a lifetime crisis. But then, you know, the crisis you know, it subsides a little bit over the summer and they go back to sort of more normal working conditions. And then when the second wave begins, they are not going back into sort of emergency conditions. The Mm. bosses are expecting them to keep going with sort of as normal. And so they finally had enough and they went on strike. So, and, um, Mark Brenner, who used to be at Labor Notes and is now a professor who teaches labor studies, was calling them sort of PTSD strikes Mm. of like, healthcare workers who have just seen so much and it's unrelenting and like they're reaching the end of their ropes. And they were also just like, yeah, like I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to be a hospital worker over the last year and just see it and like trying to figure out how to treat it, you know, some of the stories that nurses were telling me about, you know, having conversations with other nurses around the country that, you know, was part organizing call and part just like, how are you treating this? What are you finding that works? You know, what are you finding yeah. that makes people like able to breathe? Like that kind of thing built up so much. And there was, um, you know, there were some days of action among nurses last spring where they were calling specifically for a national health care program, like beyond sort of Medicare for all, but actually yeah. building something like the NHS that would actually be run by medical professionals rather than, you know, hospital yeah. executives who are the worst people in the world. And the the way that that conversation went, I do think that there is some pent up energy that might explode you know, we have massively high unemployment numbers yeah. right now. And at first we did sort of hear at least anecdotally about more walkouts. And some of those are really small, right? Like I interviewed some women who had walked off the job at a Bojangles, which is a fast food chain mm. um, in North Carolina, because they found out that one of their coworkers had COVID and they sort of found this out by like a sort of unobtrusive post on the bulletin board rather than their employers taking them in and being like, hey, somebody got COVID, you should all go get tested, like whatever. And they were just like, oh, hell no, and walked off the job and called the local news. 
So, you know, the things like that, that like the strike data won't catch, but it's there and it's simmering and it's really interesting. And of course, the thing that we're all watching right now is the union vote at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, which is, you know, it would be the first union win if they win at an Amazon warehouse. Um, That would be huge. It's also like labor unions in the U.S. have had a really hard time winning union elections in the South because of a history of racism and anti-union laws that go hand in hand in those places. And this is a, a warehouse that opened during the pandemic. So it opened last March. So these are workers who have only worked in pandemic conditions. And it's been really interesting to talk to people about this. Like I was speaking to an organizer from Minnesota who also works with Amazon workers who was saying that Amazon has really used the sort of social distancing provisions to punish workers who are organizing. Mm. So if the workers are talking to each other, they get written up or fired for violating social distancing guidelines. So, you know, there's there's that that has been used like really effectively to sort of break up worker discontent. And so when they can no longer do that, that might be interesting, too. But, you know, I think that if they win in Alabama, which is a big if because like Amazon is pulling out all the stops to try to break the union, including apparently getting the asking to get the stoplight outside of the plant sped up so that the organizers (laughs) are trying to like talk to people while they're at the stoplight. Have less time to Yeah. But if they win, that would be huge, right? Because it would be a group of warehouse workers actually getting Amazon where they live, right? And they place these things in places that don't have a lot of union density on purpose. You know, they place these things in communities that desperately need the jobs. There was that report in the UK last week about, you know, the temp agencies that are hiring workers for Amazon warehouses. Mm. And one of the places, um, was it West Lothian, I think, that the Amazon jobs were like 58% of the, wow. the job advertisements yeah. at all. So, you know, they're, they're very aware of what they're doing when they're placing these warehouses. So if, if there's a win there, that would be huge. And I would assume would kick off many more organizing attempts at more of these warehouses. So we'll see. I obviously, I wish I could predict the future. That would be cool. Um, But I think that there's a lot of anger and a lot of conversations happening about the workplace and how much more it, it sucks now than it already did that hopefully, you know, we can capitalize on and actually see some changes. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Before you go, do you want to just let people know where they can find you on social media, where they can find your writing and where they can get your book? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Sarah L. Jaffe. That is S-A-R-A-H-L-J-A-F-F-E. You can find me on the internet at workwon'tloveyouback.org. If you're in the UK, Hearst is the publisher of the book. You can buy it directly from them. You can buy it from your local neighborhood bookstore. You can also do that in the US. And uh, there are also links on my website. So you can find where you can buy it from there. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you.